listener production. This podcast contains occasional rude words and possibly some very wrong concepts. So you have to blame yourself for listening and we hope you have a laugh. G'day, it's the Moon Man here, Lawrence Mooney. Did you ever have a childhood dream denied but can live with yourself because at least you tried? Check out this podcast, Saturday Afternoon Fever, with Matthew Hardy and myself, where we remember what we were like as naughty kids, terrible teenagers and young, drunk, idiot adults. Saturday Afternoon Fever. This is a Smart Fella production on the Listener app. Chapter 12, the under-14s. The Little League whetted my footy appetite and it wasn't long before I was turning out for a real team. The local Notting Hill B-side. They wore blue and white vertical stripes like North Melbourne in the VFL. Mm. The Notting Hill who? Were they the kangaroos like North Melbourne? No, we didn't have a, a motif for a logo. That's weird, That's isn't bullshit. it? Bullshit. Didn't have one. Every football team had no, one. We didn't. A winning wasn't a motif in our, our regular right. season either. Uh, someone had heard that they were struggling to field a full team and during one particularly laborious science lesson at school, a few kids decided to sign up together. The ground was near to where we all lived and training was every Tuesday and Thursday after school. The A-team trained at the same time and place, but on a different, probably superior area of the local Oval. Every so often, the coach of the A-team would ask one of our group to join in with them. I thought I'd rather play with my mates in the Bs, but secretly hoped they'd haul me over to the A's one afternoon. Oh, everyone I was, wants I was, to get in the first. I was never given the choice. Mm. The one benefit was that the A's played on Saturday mornings, whereas the B's played on Sunday Arvos. In the B's, I wouldn't miss seeing the Saints play anywhere at all, and I could sleep late on the weekend. We finished training in time to be home for tea. Running home on a Thursday night, the streetlights reflecting off slick, wet roads and my breath-creating icy clouds in front of my face, I stuck to the nature strips, hurtling concrete driveways so that I wouldn't wear down the stops on my moulded sole boots. Under our outside porch light, I bashed my boots against the front step, the dirt came off in thick layers with see-through circles where the stops had been like mini biscuit moulds before coming inside to eat the steak I could smell cooking. Mum insisted on buying me a mouth guard. The properly fitted jobs were worth a fortune, so we returned from the chemist with a clear plastic horseshoe <laughs> instead. One size fits all. The instructions stated that it should be boiled in hot water before mm. being bitten into so it would mould itself into the shape of my mouth. The taste and texture of the hot gummy plastic was putrid. I remember worse than I, I Brussels my, sprouts. I loved my mouth guard so much. I used to wear it around the house. <laughs> I know you said your father was a harsh disciplinarian, but come <laughs> off it. And also, if you back in the day, you would you know emulate your favourite players or scenes from the football. And one of the things that I would do in the back garden was I'd pretend that the umpire had blown the whistle and made a decision against me that I thought was unfair and you'd rip your mouth guard out and throw it onto the ground and say, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> to remonstrate with a make-believe umpire. So most people pretended to kick winning goals and you pretended to argue with the umpire. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum, looking through the kitchen window, would see this kid running around, bouncing the ball, then stop argue with someone that wasn't there and throw his mouth guard on the ground. This explains a lot. I think we need to get some help for him. He should be assessed, Jim. Ah, don't worry about it. Maybe they could send you a pretend fucking therapist. <laughs> I did. I used to lie on the couch and speak to somebody that wasn't there. We were the least talented team of junior footballers ever to have put on a pair of poorly fitted boots. On the surface, it appeared we could play, but the fact was we never won. No, we lost often by massive margins. <laughs> that team called Knox City once kicked 45 goals against us on our home ground. 
opposition coaches had an unfortunate habit of swapping their entire forward line with their back line at three-quarter time to get everybody a chance at kicking goals. <laughs> Luckily, our coach never One tried. One of those teams. <laughs> you were just hapless. Humiliation. Right. Luckily, our coach never tried a similar ploy or we'd all have had a chance to get a goal kicked against us. Not that he needed to. It happened anyway. Our full forward had goals kicked against him on more than one occasion and the other team's full back would simply flee up the field with no fear of embarrassment. Sliding around in the slop was sometimes fun enough in itself for us. Mm. We'd wore rubber bands or the sliced off ends of dishwashing gloves as garters to keep your socks up, right? But they also cut the circulation off your little legs. You'd give the garters a miss. <coughs> Pardon me. If you gave the garters or the rubber bands a miss, your socks would fall down and create masses of mud that would weigh your legs down so you played even worse than you had been before. But what about when you were in the forward line of a bad side and the ball never comes down there and then by the time it does eventually somehow (laughs) freakishly get down there, you're freezing and somebody picks up the ball and kicks it into your hands it's like it just hurts. He's like, ah! Our pre-game preparations were preposterous. We'd rum liniment on ourselves for no other reason than that's what the real players did. And it smelled like footy. Yeah, some kids wrapped uh, elastoplast around their wrists or knees without any actual need to do so. Trainers took resin and shook it on our hands from battered alloy tins like the salt shakers from the fish and chip shop. It was intended to improve our grip and this substance appeared to consist of a mixture of parmesan cheese and sand. Before <laughs> running onto the ground, we'd face each other in two horizontal lines, 10 kids each handballing half a dozen footies rapid fire in all directions. The whole exercise accompanied by the clapping of hands and the yelling out of cliches aplenty, such as, come on, fire up, we can beat this bunch of girls. <laughs> <laughs> then the stretching would start. We'd pair off and stand back to back, linking arms behind ourselves, taking turns, we'd lift our partner up by bending over and bringing the other kid up off the ground onto our back with all their weight. Uh, we'd do 10 tuck jumps as we counted them out loud. Sometimes the warm-ups were so rugged that we were stuffed before the game even started. I always felt quite puffed as I ran out onto the ground. I thought, I'm no good here. It's always the way <laughs> running, though. You, the first 10 metres, it's just horrible. Off-field injuries prompted all manner of amateur diagnoses. Uh, how many fingers am I holding up? Would ask somebody's uncle wearing a yellow armband in the pretend doctor style in cases of possible concussion. Warm flannels or the magic spray cured any other ailments. What was the magic spray? Magic spray, it's kind of an ice an ice spray, so it would kind of like numb the area. Right. So it was basically just an aerosol can full of some kind of fluorocarbon that would come out freezing cold <laughs> and, and burn a hole in the ozone layer. <laughs> if not your Interesting skin. thing about um, the concussion test is uh, the actual concussion test that uh, paramedics use, there's a series of questions like, you know, what country are you in? What's the capital of the country? And one of them was, you know, what's the Prime Minister's name? And between 2010 and 2013, they had to drop the question because people would just go, uh, uh, is it Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard, <laughs> Tony Abbott or Malcolm? I don't know. I don't know who the Prime Minister is. It's like, okay, we're going to do brain surgery on this guy. <laughs> so they dropped the question. Fascinating. Thank you. We did have some outstanding players. It was just that they stood out for all the wrong reasons. Take Philip Franklinstein. <laughs> Philip was without doubt the worst footballer anyone <laughs> had ever seen in any environment. You didn't see me play footy. He never missed training and he always tried his hardest. He even had specialist help from a skills coach, usually somebody's dad with some spare time up his sleeve. Philip was not disabled in any way, 
but his feet, his head, and his hands were developing way quicker than the rest of his physique. He looked like a marionette when he went for a mark. The messages from his mind seemed to get lost somewhere between his brain and his body. Time and space eluded him. His gauges were gone. He once let out for a mark and, as the footy headed straight for him, either forgot or failed to close his hands around the ball so that when he hit his chest, his arms were still stuck out in front of him, waiting to catch the thing. <laughs> it's like he was the victim of an optical illusion. Philip and his loyal father, who was forever following his son's fortunes, were friendly, fair-dinkum fellas, but there was no way around the fact that Philip was a shocker. Forgoing any argument over moulded soles or screw-ins, he played in a pair of Kmart winners, which were brown <laughs> which were brown and made of canvas with a beige stripe and resembled Dunlop volleys if you couldn't afford the real ones. Philip never got any better, but as we were short on numbers, he always got a game. Surprisingly for all his flaws, he, we always offered him our support and we never singled him out. <laughs> so he was always chosen. That's that's a nice story. Yeah. So with the the winners, Kmart winners, did they have stops or were they just runners? Just runners. So he's always going ass over tit right. on top yeah. of all his other inabilities. Right? <laughs> so he's running around just sliding around. Wow. Our captain, our captain Ian, who was known as Dylan for reasons no one could recall, was a tall, rangy winger with an almost red hair and huge pair of ears. If our team was a disastrously drought-stricken cattle ranch, then he was the landowner who was waiting just a little longer before deciding to shoot his stock. He was proud, stoic, and Australian. I liked him for a number of reasons, the main one being that he had a ping-pong table at his house. Dylan's finest hour as the first player from our team to reach 50 games for the Notting Hill Bees was tarnished somewhat when the doorway-sized banner made of interwoven vertical and horizontal crepe paper strips held together too tightly with standard sticky tape almost decapitated him as he tried to lead the team (laughs) through it. (laughs) We tried to stifle our amusement while he tearfully played the first half with a red ring around his neck as if he'd been (laughs) luckily escaped at the last moment from the noose. When he and I were young, Dill had once accidentally walked in on my mum while she was having a bath. Oh, gee. Lying there wearing nothing but a flannel over her face, she is assumed him to be me and asked him to pass the radox. Remember those yeah. salts you'd put in the bath? Bath like, salts. What, what, soothing the pain from your aching bones? That's exactly what it used to do. Upon returning to my room, we're in the, uh, we're in the middle of a game of, um, I don't know, Cluedo or something. His whole head was a purpley red colour and he wouldn't say a word about why. <laughs> <laughs> Later that night, mum and I worked out what had happened and though she was a bit embarrassed, we laughed until there were tears rolling down mm-hmm. both of our cheeks. He didn't say a word. He just quietly <laughs> shut the door behind him after handing her the radox. Can you imagine? The poor boy is like, oh, my God. Well, if he just had a piss and then like left like most normal blokes, mm-hmm. no, he had to go and wash his hands, didn't he? So he deserved it, him and his hygiene. How long was he in there with your mother alone in the bath? Shut up. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I'm just adjusting myself. Most ki- what? Most ki- <laughs> <laughs> because of that. Off it. I had to explain it as if to say it's not what's happening. And I was just moving around. Here I was wrong. <laughs> I'm right. not wrong. I'm just most, most kids' families, back to the book, became involved with the <laughs> back to the book. 
Most kids' families became involved with the club to some extent. In my case, my brother Simon agreed to be the runner. Mum joined the jumper washing roster and Dad drove us to the games. Dad was of a high enough rank in the police force to be allocated a police car as a private vehicle. Oh, really? As was the case at most local grounds, cars would park around the boundary line providing people with a seat and good shelter in the rain. So you drove around in a police car as the family car? Yeah, and my mum, we knew it. We would shit stir her. She'd basically sit there in the passenger seat thinking that people thought that she was a policewoman. We'd go, good on you, Danny Francis, who was the name of a character in Cop Shop, a policewoman. So she didn't mind being mistaken for a policewoman. She loved it. She thought that everyone thought she was a cop. Otherwise, she was supposed to be a homemaker or a housewife. It was not necessarily glamorous. Good on her. Yeah. Did she ever extrapolate the alter ego and start, you know, administering fines or or warnings? No, she never went that far. She did to us. That was a separate situation. She did shoot a man once. (laughs) To watch him die. Just to watch him in (laughs) Reno. Yeah, that's right. Um, Dad's cop car had a megaphone mounted on the roof between the two blue lights, and Dad would use this to offer encouragement during matches. (laughs) Wow, that is bananas. With our team called Notting Hill, we'd often hear, Carner Hills blaring out in booming baritone, totally bewildering their opposition players. Out of a cop car. And sending our our fullback Fats into hysterics. (laughs) Dad had to make sure that he hollered when the ball was as far away from Fats as possible so he didn't affect his ability to get the ball because he was the only one who was able to. Ah, the hills. Deep so in- you were the Notting Hills Hills. That yeah. was your. Oh, yeah. That was your probably your nickname. Pathetic. Deep in faraway Frenchy Gully stood a ground named the Basin. Set in the side of a hollowed-out hill, it was colder than an esky in the Antarctic. At halftime, an assistant would organise a bucket of boiling water into which the players would tentatively dip their fingers in an effort to avoid frostbite. One freezing afternoon, unable to feel my hands anyhow, as you've previously suggested, Mm. I shoved my fingers into the bucket and kept them there, instantly feeling the blood in my body rush to my fingertips. Screaming in pain, I pulled my hands away to see my digits looking like overcooked, sizzling sausages about to burst. That was the last of me for the match and the last game I played for that team. I never had a shower at the ground after the game. If there were any showers at all, they were teeth-chattering cold with zero pressure. Mm. Most importantly, I didn't want anyone to discover that I didn't have a very big dick. Logic is lacking when you're 14 with not much of an old fella. I didn't realise the temperature would have ensured that everyone was shrunken up no matter what their natural size. Besides, Dad has got us into the St Kilda dressing rooms at Waverley Park one afternoon after a real game, and some of those blokes were hung like draft horses. You'd go into the rooms after the game. Yeah, you'd yeah. sneak into the rooms or someone would get you into the rooms and they'd be, I don't know, you know. Wandering around with their dicks out. Yeah. <laughs> That's what change rooms are. The only dick I'd ever really seen, I suppose, was like, you know, your dad's or something. Thus giving you some kind of inferiority complex for the rest of your life. <laughs> was that his intention? So did you, uh, you know, you're lying on a couch and there's some Jungian psychiatrist going, did you envy the size of your father's penis? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I did. So that's, for you. that's a barrier you're going to have to break through in order to enjoy complete success. <laughs> How do you even know, though, you're supposed to have a big or a small dick when you're a kid? Who even well, has that conceptual... You, well, you're comparing yourself to everything in terms of, you know... Um, Relativity. Well, that mean you have a superior. Interior. So you look at his penis, and then you look at yours, and you go, "Oh man!" Yeah, but do you look at his leg, and then look yes, at yours, of and you've got an inferior to already yeah, about the your size leg. of his hands and everything. And that's why your dad's, you know, your hero and your champion. Anyway, died prematurely. <laughs> I've got two of them. Oh no! For dad death. <laughs> 
didn't even you didn't even do that on purpose. I don't reckon that big exhalation. I think it just all caught up with you. Yeah, it did catch up. With Fair me. enough. Fair enough, too, mate. You want a hug? No, I'm right. I'm right. I've got a mate. When you ring him up, he answers. If you're a bloke, if he sees it's a bloke ringing, yeah. he answers. He answers the call by going, "Small, small cock helpline. How can I help?" <laughs> That's great stuff. That is great stuff. Smallcock helpline. Yeah. Um, combined, back to the book, combined with my willy worries was a fear of anyone setting eyes on my skinny frame in general. You'll fill out. You're just a slim gym, that's all, mum would say whenever I started on the subject. Paranoid I was about how lacking in muscle or meat on my bones I was. Our family doctor, Dr. Vasta, a gentle, heavy-lidded greyhound owner who seemed to speak in slow motion, refused to give me any medication to enhance my appetite, so I had to make do with wearing long sleeves or extra layers underneath anything I was wearing. I failed to realise that wearing a windsheeter in 30-degree heat at the Waverley Pool probably attracted more attention than if I just sat around in my board shorts. Some of us wondered how it might feel to have a fight on the footy field, but we weren't certain how to start one. Baiting your mates was easy. You knew how to upset them because you knew their insecurities. Comments on the size of your mate's mum's feet, the sour milk smell given off by your sister, or the pair of burgundy cords you'd been seen to wear could be relied on to incite swinging fists. <laughs> but with strangers, it was a different story. Physically, among each other, we also had some idea how each opponent could handle himself. But no one wanted to throw the first punch at somebody new. It happened during a game against Glen Waverley Rovers, whose jumper was just like Collingwood's. They were long-standing flag winners in all divisions. A's, B's, the works. They had a renowned full forward named Mark Mercedes. An A-side superstar, Mercedes had the square-jawed good looks of a Nordic horseman and the shifty eyes of a high-stakes poker player. He was as tough as he was talented. Competition rules allowed anybody to play at either A or B level, but not both on the same weekend. When we learned that Mercedes would be lining up against us one Sunday afternoon, having missed the previous day's A game due to a family function, our coach realised there was only one answer. Violence. Wow. Isn't it It's interesting that a coach of children would instruct somebody to go out and whack him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the only way we were going to have a chance. That doesn't happen anymore. Our coach was named Rex, and he was the boss of our side for several seasons. He was a truck driver with old-fashioned ideas. His son was among my teammates. Rufus was a local hard man, and like his father, had a Fred Flintstone physique. Apart from living in the same street, going to the same school and playing for the same team, Rufus and I had something else in common. We despised each other. <laughs> That's good. Rufus and I had been students at Sindel Tech for just three days before our first punch-on. We were in the big league now, so it seemed sensible to seek supremacy from the start, a typically tenuous basis upon which to begin belting each other up. A lunchtime kick-to-kick began, involving a big group of boys, with Rufus's eye, Rufus and I at opposite ends. I began to dominate my end, taking one strong specky after another that day. This rare fine form and the ensuing acclaim obviously provoked Rufus's envy, so he swapped ends to make sure that it stopped. Intimidated by his bulk but never one to back down, I took him on. Two more big grabs and I met a smack in the mouth. It was on. It was on. Mud, blood, the works. Unfortunately, the fight occurred outside the principal's office, which looked out onto the main oval. We were both beckoned inside. Mr. Irwin had an Irish accent, fiery eyes and elf-like facial features. He also had a weird beard, which led to the kids calling him Captain Kremen after the character on the Kenny Everett video (laughs) show. Captain Captain Kremen. Kremen. So just the kind of um, Abraham Lincoln yeah. moustache. Yeah, that's him. Creepy. In the time it took for us to wipe the blood from our faces in his foyer, he'd made a few phone calls and found that we'd been arch foes for a few years, 
clashing regularly, <laughs> clashing regularly at Pinewood Primary and on one occasion at footy training. The strap was still in season at that stage and it took no more than a brief demonstration of a doubled-up leather belt whacking his desk with a deafening crack to encourage us to bury our differences on the spot. If we couldn't be friends, we could leave each other alone, he said, and if not, there wouldn't be a second warning. Wow. So, Mark Mercedes, the great goal kicker for Glen Waverley Rovers. Here we go. In the Collingwood jumper, runs out onto the ground, takes his place at full forward. He had a right to feel confident playing as he was at a level below the one he was used to <laughs> against a team with less talent than a failed new faces contestant. A tactical mastermind, our coach had devised a cunning plan in which Rufus and I would bury our differences and join forces to defeat the opposition danger man. We were going to bash him. Mercedes was part of a pack in the goal square when we got him. Into time on, in the second quarter, he'd already kicked seven. Rising yet again like an ascending Adonis above his flat foot of the opponents, he fumbled the first grab and fell groundwards, grasping for a second bite at the cherry. With fingers outstretched, mouth open in anticipation and eyes set firmly on the ball, he was never going to see Rufus unload a lip-splitting left-hander. Oh! Mercedes hit the deck, the pack closed around him, and as he lay momentarily exposed, I delivered a deadly knee drop to his guts. Oh! <laughs> he was a cool dude and a big bloke, but he cried like a baby. The halftime siren sounded, and as we ran towards the dressing room, everybody booed i felt like a bad guy and it was brilliant yeah <laughs> can you see the follow of your ways now yeah it's, not, it's embarrassing i'm ashamed and also, also what was the coach thinking he's a grown man but also at the time when the book was written it was still you know a light-hearted thing to have a laugh at bashing someone <laughs> <laughs> but some years on i know it's not funny it's hard to celebrate yeah it really is. It's not going to stop me, though. Andy. No, it's it, it's good writing, and I'm enjoying the scene, the maison scene. It's not right, though, is it? But it's not right, but it's just, you know, there's one, there's a point where you would have been barracking for that as a football supporter, like, whack him, kill him. But now, as we have evolved very rapidly, I think. We can't so agree that it's the right idea. I look at violence and I just. I was raised around violence, and I'm not talking my family, but Bayswater was a violent place. There was always fights at the pub, and you'd go out with your mates. But you know what? We were fighting we my were... brother's crew, and there would always be a punch-up. There was punch-ups everywhere. The idea of it now just really does beg a belief. Back to the book. Andy was Rufus's best friend. How Rufus had any friends when he insisted on wearing old-fashioned Ronald Dale Barassi boots oh. came up over the ankle is beyond me. With that little ankle protector pad on the yeah. outside. yeah. His grandpa had handed them down to his father before him. This watch. Hold on. Like out of Pulp Fiction. However, how, tall, how far back did Ron Barassi go? Only when did he first start playing? 1950s. In the 50s. Yeah. However, aside from Rufus, tall, blonde, solid, and an A-side staple, Andy could do the Rubik's Cube in record time. Oh, no. One season, Andy was absent for several weeks. And then one evening, his mum turned up to training and spoke to the coach. We watched Andy's mum and our coach in deep discussion, and we could only wonder what had happened. As she walked back to her car, one of the kids asked where Andy was and whether we'd be seeing him again. Andy's got no time for football, no time for girls. He's studying to be a doctor, she replied. Got into her car and drove away. How old was Andy? 14 or 15. We thought this the most hilarious thing we'd ever heard. It was so hilarious, in fact, that we ran around repeating it like a mantra in the twilight during the training <laughs> session standard <laughs> final four laps. No time for training, no time for girls, Andy's going to be a doctor. <laughs> the concept to us was ridiculous. But then again, Andy became a doctor and none of us played professional football. Unable to coach us for six weeks mid-season due to a long-distance truck driving job, 
Rufus's dad, Rex, was replaced for that period by a fellow whose face was fixed in some kind of ghastly grimace, as if permanently reacting to stinging antiseptic on an open wound. <laughs> Kenny... Crozet, Kenny Crozet was his name, must have been about... <laughs> One of those guys with a weird face down yeah. at the footy club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kenny must have been about 25 with allergies or eczema afflicting him in a major way. With his wet lips and tight white head of closely cropped hair, Kenny coached us in a state of fist-clenching frustration, often incurring the wrath of the umpire for audible abuse from the boundary line. Two weeks into his tenure, Kenny, who had won us over immediately with his way of treating us as equals turned up to training with an old, wrinkled, grey-haired woman in his car. She waited in the passenger seat throughout the session, and as we were finishing, Cameron, our deputy vice-captain, asked, Hey, Kenny, are you going to introduce us to your mum? Kenny was incredulous. Me mum? What do you mean, me mum? That's me fucking girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny wasn't one of these win-at-all-cost kids coaches who fails to put things in perspective. He was like the boxing fan who can't watch a fight without riding every punch in the corner. One of us was about to be flattened. He'd twist and turn beforehand as if it was he in the path of the oncoming bump. Oh, I like Kenny a then, lot. Then he'd react in agony as if it was he who'd received it. Not one to give up easily, Kenny would implore us to improve our performance as if his own life depended on it. For all his frustration and umpire abuse, Kenny always tried to find positive points about our play and he never swore in our company, apart from occasions and with good reason. But you could see that he was always struggling to stop himself from doing so. During his sixth and his final <laughs> game in charge, without a win to his name, we'd squandered an early three-goal lead and were eight goals behind by half time. The dressing room atmosphere was ugly. Kenny's well of constructive criticism had finally run dry. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, he said with a sigh after a long pause, I'd rather be at home f***ing my girlfriend than coaching you kids. <laughs> <laughs> there was a shock silence. This was serious. We'd seen his girlfriend. Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. Bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us. Okay, if you haven't given us a rate and review, now's the time. We're counting on you.